Welcome to the University of Oulu's podcast, an interview with honorary doctor. In this podcast, we get to know more closely the lives and careers of honorary doctors who will be conferred in the 11th conferment ceremony of the University of Oulu. The university has invited persons for conferment who have collaborated significantly with the University of Oulu. In addition, invitations have been made to persons who have distinguished themselves significantly in other ways in the society and for the benefit of operation of the university. Conferment of an honorary doctorate is the highest honor that the university can present to a person. My name is Timo Jala, and our guest today is honorary doctor Henning Schulzinne, Julian Clarence Levi, professor of computer science at the Columbia University. Welcome to the podcast, Henning. Thank you, Timo. Glad to be here and honored to be part of this program. You, you received your undergrad education at the Technical University of Darmstadt, Germany, your uh, uh, Master of Science in Electrical Engineering from the University of Cincinnati, and your PhD in Electrical Engineering from the University of Massachusetts in 1992. Uh, was electrical engineering and academic uh, studies always a clear choice for you? And what motivated you to move from Germany to US for your postgraduate edu- education? Yes, so I actually started uh, at the university in, in Darmstadt uh, doing a dual major uh, electrical engineering and economics uh, because I've always been had an interest in uh, topics other than engineering as uh, and my parents both had uh, a background in economics as well. And then uh, after my bachelor's, I decided that I was really more interested in engineering aspect in that uh, than just the economic side uh, in that. I had, as a high school student, been in uh, Livermore, California uh, as an exchange student and had really gotten my first exposure to computing uh, by just sheer chance I had uh, landed in a, a Household where I, the father of the family, I was working at Lawrence Livermore Laboratory. And even at the time, this was in 1978, uh, they had a computer terminal at home connected to a supercomputer in uh, a lab. And so I got my first experience working on uh, computing uh, and uh, computer science type topics uh, in high school. And so that was a natural motivator uh, to go into that for my uh, academic career in that. Uh, So since I had been in the United States and I actually had just as kind of a visitor, I attended a a course, electrical engineering course in Berkeley, I just as an auditor uh, and uh, American universities were not unfamiliar to me. And so I had the opportunity to uh, get a a Fulbright scholarship, what was meant to be a one-year stint in uh, the United States at at the University of Cincinnati. And then um, I wanted to do a a thesis, research thesis there. I met my wife there, my future wife at the time there. And so one thing led to another, and pretty soon I I wasn't going to complete my degree in Germany, my master's degree in Germany, but I was probably going to stick around in the United States. uh, So uh, that was one small step leads to kind of, as we often do, I guess, to uh, lifelong uh, trajectories. 
All right. So you have come a long way from that initial start, and now you are known for your fundamental and, and pioneering contributions to key protocols used in internet multimedia applications. Can you tell us more about your career, and especially at, at uh, which point of your career you decided to focus on academic research and and and, and to specialize in on internet protocols and applications? Yeah. So. I, when I started working at the uh, University of Massachusetts uh, as a um, PhD student, I already had had some exposure to uh, the internet. I worked actually originally on signal processing at, for my master's degree on audio coding uh, for uh, my master's thesis. And so my advisor at the University of Massachusetts, Massachusetts uh, who goes in networking, I probably know um, through his textbooks, Jim Carroll's, uh, who's written kind of one of his standard textbooks for introductory computer networking. Uh, he had received a, a DARPA grant to explore multimedia computing, uh, which was nascent at the time. Uh, it was really not a mainstream activity. So there was a dedicated network had been set up to explore how to carry uh, voice and video across uh, the internet. And I was lucky enough to, to participate in that. So I, that, the combination of my background in signal processing and uh, the opportunities through the project got me interested in creating uh, protocols for making these things work better. Uh, so we had the need at the time, because there was nothing there, to standardize how audio and video is transmitted across what was known at the time as the M-bone, the multicast backbone. And so I, through the project, I got introduced to uh, the standardization and research world in that particular uh, area of exploration. Again, this was not a mainstream activity by any stretch at the time. It was a very small community that had interest in that, and simply also because the internet really wasn't capable of supporting uh, the, the kind of multimedia streams. And as one of the activities that I got involved with is was to write one of the first audio and video applications on for a Sun workstation at the time uh, to carry audio and video across the internet. And so that was then used as one of the tools for the platform as well. So it was more luck and chance of being in uh, a particular research project. And quite honestly, be uh, my advisor leaving me room to explore an area which was probably a little bit outside his own interest areas to uh, get into an area that I was just starting at the time. Okay. You are currently working as, as a professor of computer science at the Columbia University. Uh, can you briefly discuss your, your current uh, work and uh, what is your typical work day like and uh, how do you balance between work and, 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 and free time? <laughs> That's so I talk briefly about the project. So I, the interest in audio and video application actually continues. I've had for a number of years an interest in uh, public safety applications. So I worked on what is known in the United States as the 911 system uh, in Europe as 112 emergency calling. I, and so I've had an interest in how to support 
public safety uh, agencies, so police, fire, ambulance, uh, emergency rescue type of uh, services through internet applications. So one of the projects that we're working on is to create a testbed for evaluating the quality of voice for these first responders, as they're called. So people who are on the scene of an accident or a crime uh, or a natural disaster. And uh, so we are building uh, a tool set that allows us to determine how well different codecs, how different encodings uh, work and how newer applications that are replacing some of the traditional radios that are used will perform in practice. Uh, the second topic that I'm working on is I'm motivated by my background in public policy. Uh, so one of the big concerns now, particularly because of COVID-19, is the lack of internet, what's called broadband access uh, for uh, families and students in particular who have to study from home. And so I've been working on a number of projects to determine uh, why certain areas uh, receive broadband services uh, and others are falling behind, and how we can use the measurement infrastructure that uh, the regulatory authorities in the United States have set up to evaluate how well the internet is performing, as well as whether we can use that infrastructure to, to deduce how public health measures, uh, such as lockdown type of measures, are reflected in uh, internet measurements. So we will be presenting a paper later this week, for example, on uh, how we can actually visualize the impact of lockdown measures on uh, internet streaming and uh, download behavior in that and use that as an indicator of uh, public health, uh, the public health situation uh, in that. And uh, the third topic I'm currently working on is a a, a related to the Internet of Things, uh, a, a long-running interest of mine that I came out of an interest in real-time services. And there, the question that we're tackling is, how do we, now that Internet, the Internet of Things is scaling up to uh, millions of devices, so for example, for monitoring air quality or monitoring traffic, how we can make these programmable and scalable uh, for these type of very large systems in that. And so we have a project that allows us to explore uh, how do we name devices, how do we uh, restrict access to devices, how do we program these services in that? Uh, so the, our current exploration is on creating a new system that allow, makes it much easier, hopefully, for programmers to deal with these very large-scale systems in a unified way. To answer your question uh, on a uh, typical workday, it's for U.S. faculty, uh, typically, I would say, I split into four components. I, I teach a large introductory networking class that takes up a lot of my time uh, on Zoom naturally uh, in that. So talking to students, uh, dealing with uh, homework assignments and all the usual things. And then I, I have an administrative role I, in, I'm part of the, uh, the Senate, the self-governing body for the university uh, this year. I, and then we have to 
do the usual grantsmanship, uh, write grant proposals and all that. And then finally, we get to do some research in that. So uh, one of the other projects I'm working on is defining, uh, based on a workshop that we ran with the National Science Foundation, uh, the directions for broadband research in the United States as an advisory paper that we're working on. And in terms of uh, kind of the uh, balance, uh, one of the uh, advantages of being working at home is that I don't have to commute into New York City, which on the best of days is no great fun. Uh, so I get a little bit of extra time. So I try to go outside every day and I uh, explore the neighborhood uh, and I uh, get out for uh, hikes and walks, even during winter, you know, and that provides a bit of respite from just being stuck in the same office all day. Uh, you advised the U.S. Federal Communications Commission for many years, and, and currently you are uh, a member of the scientific advisory board of the University of the 60th flagship program. So these are examples of your positions of trust. So what motivates you to 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 take part in this kind of activities? So, I, Martin, and for somewhat different reasons, I think the, uh, the FCC activity really came out of my interest in using networking uh, for the public good. Uh, and I had the opportunity to uh, start at, I believe, public safety um, part of the Federal Communications Commission, and then I uh, assume a somewhat broader role within the commission in that. I believe it's the responsibility of uh, faculty and researchers in general uh, who have worked on topics of public interest in the technology sphere to uh, make sure that they can help contribute their experience, the technical experience, to uh, the policy-making arena. is often a uh, dearth of people with a technical background in those uh, agencies. Most, at least in the United States, most of the regulatory agencies are staffed by lawyers and economists, uh, very capable lawyers and economists, but again, they don't have engineering background. And so uh, helping... Uh, providing input to uh, lawyers and economists on how technology works, what is possible, what may be more hype than reality, and where advocacy by interested parties may not be telling the whole story, I think is just a fundamental responsibility of people particularly working on the more applied side of science and uh, technology. So I have always found that I, both enjoyable as well as a just a necessary part of being a, a researcher. I, it's not a full-time occupation. It's not a lifetime occupation. But where that's possible, I, I think it is something that should be encouraged I, more broadly. I, not. And for advisory boards, that, that, to be honest, that's actually mutually beneficial, one would hope. Uh, namely, uh, one gets to see how uh, other parts of the research landscape function, uh, what they're thinking about, uh, and uh, maybe shape a little bit 
what uh, topics and directions are being pursued. I, I suspect I learned uh, more about, uh, in this particular case, 6G than I've been able to contribute. I've been able to get a broader perspective on what's happening in this new and exciting area uh, and beyond just kind of a smaller confines of a single university. So that's, uh, you almost feel like it's more like you're getting more out of it than you're putting uh, into it. But it's also one where you get to establish and maintain research relationships uh, at the same time. And so this is hardly a, these of work, but they're hardly burdens compared to some of the other tasks like grading exams and some of the administrative stuff. That's really the fun part of being a faculty. Um, so you have had an inside view on, on, on internet research for several decades. You have published uh, maybe almost 300 papers and, and uh, almost 100 internet uh, RFCs over, over the years. You were inducted to the Internet Hall of Fame in 2013. So against this backdrop, uh, how has internet research evolved during your career? And where do you see internet research heading in the next decade? And, and uh, what, what, in your view, are the most important research challenges uh, right now in, 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 in under the broad umbrella of internet research? Yes, so there has been, uh, I think from an organizational perspective, Internet research really has uh, changed dramatically. I'm not looking back. It is just uh, was so the scale and community was so different and so much smaller uh, when I, I when first started uh, being actively involved in the early 1990s. You could know most of the people who are working in a particular area. Uh, most of the work was probably concentrated in uh, Northern Europe and uh, North America, maybe with a few people outside uh, that particular geographic area. And it was possible for relatively small groups to make uh, a large difference in terms of deployed infrastructure, simply because I, it was an open field, really. It wasn't a legacy uh, to contend with. All of that has changed. It's just become a lot harder uh, to make those changes. Uh, many of the decisions are now made by extremely large standards bodies like the GPP, uh, essentially dominated by uh, large corporations. Uh, we, uh, ability of academic researchers to contribute has diminished uh, in that. Uh, sphere. So th that means that research and networking really has changed. Uh, I believe in many cases, uh, the valuable contributions are evaluation and comparison and essentially keeping industry honest. Uh, as a not that they want to cheat, but may have an interest in uh, making their products and systems look good. Uh, and often I uh, leave kind of a fair and unbiased evaluation of what's going on is not as motivating uh, for that. So also, while initially doing, like I would say through the early 2000s, simply making the internet work technically was the greatest challenge, 
Now, the, the two challenges that I see are uh, to make the internet usable uh, for a much larger uh, set of people, namely I mean, everyday uh, users as opposed to engineers, uh, and to keep the internet evolving into um, a positive direction. Uh, that's harder simply because there's so much deployed technology. And we've seen that it takes a very long time for even what seem like relatively small changes uh, to um, manifest themselves in that. So, for example, they have been for 20 years or so, an effort to upgrade the core infrastructure from one version of the Internet Protocol to another we still haven't succeeded collectively. Uh, and even though it is not, mind, it's a change largely invisible to users. Uh, it is a change that is not that fundamental and not. So that means that the impact of research, particularly outside the academic, uh, outside the industrial sphere is actually quite hard uh, these days. It is when much of the impact is being made by very large research groups within the dominant uh, kind of hyperscale uh, providers, uh, less so on the research side. Uh, you're not. So changes. I, I often like to say that uh, networking research has become uh, somewhat more similar to civil engineering, uh, just like civil engineers deal with large uh, but fundamental infrastructures like roads and rail and uh, and water systems and uh, so on. Uh, the network engineers now deal with a fundamental infrastructure that society relies on and where the value is reliability, security, usability, cost, not so much necessarily uh, inherently technical innovation. We have to recognize that uh, it's an important role, uh, not, but it is a different role than uh, networking research and to some larger extent computing research in general has to fulfill. The design of current internet dates back several decades, if we think about the sort of key design choices that were made. And now if you were asked to completely redesign the internet from scratch, from so-called famous clean slate design, what would be your most fundamental changes to the current design? Yeah, that's, I've been thinking about that a little bit. I, come on, that's, Unlikely that this will happen for reasons I mentioned, I, but fundamentally, I believe that the biggest problem with the existing system is its ever-increasing complexity, which also means that reliability is ever harder to achieve, simply because it is becoming very difficult for any single human being to understand, let alone manage, a complex network infrastructure, uh, partially because there's so much of the legacy that's still embedded in modern networks. So if I had a chance, I think we now had have accumulated a set of uh, ex engineering experiences, uh, research insights, uh, techniques uh, that were not available in the early days of the internet. So it ranges from uh, kind of insights into uh, 
security, uh, authentication, cryptographic techniques, uh, to uh, control theory type techniques for congestion control, uh, to uh, non-traditional uh, means of adjusting uh, and planning networks, uh, standard references to machine learning type techniques that allow us to design the internet differently. So my fundamental uh, a version of a newer internet would be one that would take these insights and create a, a much more streamlined, a simplified version of what we have that is universally programmable, uh, not just in uh, the data plane, as it's called, the data forwarding, uh, but also in the control plane, so that it is easier to evolve the capabilities of the internet uh, to either local needs, for research needs, or for new applications without having this elaborate process of standardization and partial implementation in that. So a programmable, uh, greatly simplified, streamlined version that omits at the lower layers in particular things that have turned out not to be so valuable and difficult to do, and makes those capabilities available, however, to applications through a programmable control plane, uh, to me, would seem like a way to get unstuck out of the somewhat rigid networking model that we have maneuvered ourselves into. You still have many years left before your formal retirement, if that ever happens. So is there something particular that you would still want to achieve in your research career? Yeah, so what you just asked about earlier, if I had that the opportunity is to at least outline what a future, a more user-friendly, more secure, more programmable internet would look like, would be my grand vision. In others, it is dealing with some of the negative impacts of what has happened. So for just as one small example, that is a research project that I'm hoping to undertake uh, relatively uh, soon, is that in the United States, uh, the very voice system that I had some role in designing, I had uh, has lowered the cost of making voice calls to such an extent that many of our, and most of our voice calls are now unwanted um, spam calls, just like email was in the early days of you know, overrun completely by spam email. So how do we uh, design a system that allows users to reclaim uh, a voice network for calls that they actually want to receive as opposed to uh, being spammed and scammed uh, by calls they do not want to receive. Uh, that's a short-term research objective uh, that is illustrative of kind of the let's clean up what some of the negative consequences of what were well-intentioned technology decisions that just were are being abused by uh, people for their own personal, sometimes criminal gain. Uh, now, looking back at this very moment, uh, uh, what would be the most important achievement or result that you would like the world to remember from your research? Yeah, that's that's a hard one. I'd say 
I be I the two that I'll I'll say two I probably I be the notion of my my using the internet I for an interoperable I voice and video services including for applications beyond the standard applications so I the ability for example to greatly improve the efficiency of emergency calls I through that is hopefully something that will make a somewhat more lasting contribution I to I public welfare in in general I the second one that I've involved with which hasn't really been I uh, say as visible has been the notion of disconnected uh, and uh, networks where we were among the first to explore how we can use uh, mobility to transport data uh, across uh, larger distances when other network technologies are unavailable. So there was work done in early in the uh, in my uh, faculty career and as well. Do you still remember how your connection to Olu was initially formed? Yes, I actually happened to look back. I was curious exactly what the date was, and I found your earliest email uh, about 20 years ago. Uh, where uh, you, out of the blue, send an email uh, indicating an interest of sending uh, a student or a researcher to my lab at Columbia University when I was working. This was in roughly 2000 uh, on Voice of IP at the time uh, in that. And I so I think one thing led to another um, research visits and tutorials for your summer school I were scheduled and I very much enjoyed I uh, was interactions with students and researchers and research exchanges uh, that we've had uh, between the two universities uh, as well. So I, I think it's been my, as many of these things are, it's a uh, my, an initiative that happened more or less by chance, I suspect. I or and then I became the foundation of a very long-running and productive and enjoyable uh, collaboration. Yeah, well, well said. Yeah, that's how it happened. Uh, now, from your perspective, uh, uh, is there something particular that has been in, in, uh, done in Oulu that has made an impact on, on internet research? Yeah, so I do want to mention... Uh, I'll mention two. Uh, namely, one is certainly from my perspective, uh, the interest in uh, smart city style, what may not even have been called smart city at a time, namely the notion of having infrastructure available in cities uh, to make the life of for people living, working, visiting there easier. Like that was I, I saw that certainly from my perspective as one of the things that now has become mainstream, but at the time, I certainly seemed I, quite forward-looking and pioneering, uh, particularly because, again, it actually thought about how internet technology can be applied, uh, not just as a classical information technology that was used to manage mundane parts of business or industrial life, but as something that allows citizens uh, of a region and visitors to 
a better enjoy or to have a, a more uh, a more productive way of engaging with the environment and then later measure uh, what's going on and use that to improve uh, the function of the environment or understand better what's happening. Uh, and then uh, more recently, uh, the notion of looking beyond uh, our currently starting to deploy 5G networks into what long range, what should wireless networks look like uh, going forward, both at the physical layer, uh, where uh, the university is very strong, as well as some of the application and security concerns that arise uh, from that. So I see those are two things that I've been able to experience more immediately uh, in that. And I found those both uh, quite illuminating and building on the strength, really, both industrial connectedness strength as well as uh, the engagement with the local community. As a recognition of, of your contributions to our university's operations over the years, you, you will be soon conferred as an honorary doctor. Uh, what does this recognition mean to you personally? I mean, I, this was, I'd say, one of the most pleasant uh, surprises when I received the notification uh, in that. Uh, it is particularly for somebody who's working on the applied side of science and engineering and technology. I, I was just I, I'm flattered and, and I honored by the recognition I, in a place that I've had my a long-running relationship with uh, in that to see that as being recognized as valuable. So I found that as to be one of the, the most um, pleasant surprises that one can uh, receive. And I certainly, uh, I had always told people when I was had the, uh, the honor of being uh, the, uh, on a OLUP or generally in Finland on a, a PhD uh, committee um, as uh, in in the role of in various roles both at OLU and at Helsinki and elsewhere that I this always seemed like such a ceremony that is so different and I would honestly say better than what we're doing in the United States so I I very much look forward to eventually when we're all able to do that, uh, to participate in that ceremony as kind of one of those memorable occasions that define an academic life. Finally, if you would be asked to describe the University all with three words, what words would you choose? Say, I engaged, friendly, uh, and unique are the three words that come to mind. Uh, I'll try to uh, elaborate a little bit. Engaged, like I mentioned, uh, again, I hardly claim to know all parts of the university uh, that I wear going on. It's a large institution, uh, so I can only speak to the pieces that I've seen, is that there is just such a emphasis and ability and I think have being part uh, being part of a let's say not so huge community compared to say New York City uh, has its advantages that uh, it is 
it seems relatively easy for researchers at the university to engage both with the community, be that um, through uh, the city or the port or uh, local companies, uh, as well as the broader research community as well. For its relatively small size and somewhat remote location, uh, the university has certainly always has been very connected to uh, the global research enterprise, and again, facilitated by having a and large corporate or semi-corporate lab like BTT uh, in their vicinity and that. So uh, the friendly part is that I've always found that uh, people I've interacted with in the university have managed to uh, bring in people from the outside, make them feel welcome, and uh, share some of the non-academic parts of life in Northern Finland uh, with visitors and uh, more temporary residents, let's say, of that. So innovative, like I said, in many cases, uh, the university has, I think, leveraged its strength to make contributions that I think are beyond its so say size and uh, traditional position uh, in the overall academic uh, sphere in that simply because they've relied on the strength uh, of these collaborations and the ability to do things uh, that are possible in, in that environment that may not be as feasible in, if you would like call them more established, uh, traditional bound universities elsewhere. Henning, thank you very much for this nice interview. I look forward to meeting you in person in the conferment ceremony, spring 22, if and hopefully when we will be able to <laughs> arrange the ceremony then. Thank you yep. very much. Thank you. I thank you for all the questions and good talking to you. And I look forward to seeing you when we are finally able to meet in person again. Mm -hmm.